Good morning. Do you have a movie that you love so much, you've watched it hundreds, maybe thousands of times, and every time you watch it, you still get goosebumps or chills, you still sit on the edge of your seat, even though you know what's going to happen, you still have the same reaction? Now, I know those of you who have kids experience this because kids can watch a movie a thousand times, right? We were at small group not long ago, and I asked little Bray, I said, how many times have you actually watched Finding Nemo? And she said, 15, 16. And I don't doubt that's true. A thousand, five hundred sixteen times is probably how many times she has watched Finding Nemo because our little kids can watch movies over and over again. But as adults, have you ever watched a movie so many times you can recite the words you know, you know every line. You know, the movie for me is Hoosiers. When I was coaching, I'd watch that movie every October to get ready for the basketball season. I could watch that movie every time it's on. Every time I turn the channel and I see it's on, I'll stop to watch it. And I can recite every line. I still get chills and goosebumps when they're gathered in the huddle of the state championship game down by one point. There's like eight seconds left. And Coach Dale draws up a play where Buddy is going to actually take the last second shot, even though Jimmy Chitwood is by far the best player on the court for either team. And he draws up the play, and everybody kind of looks at each other, and Coach Dale says, what's wrong? What's wrong with you guys? And Jimmy Chitwood, who never says anything, looks at his coach, and he says, I'll make it. And so they draw up the play to give Jimmy the ball. He takes the ball from inbounds. It dribbles down, everything's in slow motion, he rises up, he shoots the ball, he releases it, and it goes through the net as time expires, and little old Hickory from a rural town in Indiana defeats the powerhouse South Bend Central to win the state championship. I could watch that movie a trillion times, and it never gets old. Look with me in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now look at Revelation chapter 21. And starting at verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Have you read this before? Maybe you've read it a hundred times. How do you read it? Do you read it with excitement? Do you still kind of stir in your seat a little bit? Do you get goosebumps? Are you afraid when you read this? 
Maybe you've read it a thousand times, but have you read it in the context or the way that God intended for you to understand it? And that is that, that life is going somewhere. It is hurtling toward a time when Jesus will return and the earth and its works will be burned up. Notice what it says in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to speculate. We know how the story ends. We may have read this a hundred times. We know how it ends. It ends with Jesus coming back, judging the living and the dead. The entire Bible points to Jesus and to an unknown date in the future when he will return to take the faithful home to dwell with him for all eternity. John 14, 1 through 3 states, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The entire narrative of the Bible comes down to that concept. Where I am, there you may be also. That's the entire narrative of the Bible. God didn't create a world so that he could save it. He created a world so that he could be with it. God has always wanted relationship with his creation, with his people. He has always wanted a body, a family, a bride, a church. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we talked about covenant. For some reason, God has always wanted to enter into relationship with people, the people that he created. And the entire narrative of the Bible comes down to where I am, there you may be also. God wants fellowship. He has chosen us. He wants to dwell with us, to listen to us, to make intercession for us. He wants us. And the entire biblical story is a story about a God who wants us. Where I am, there you may be also. His people, his story, and that should give you chills. That should give you goosebumps. That should cause you to be excited because without a doubt, one of the most amazing truths ever conveyed is that God wants Chris McCurley in heaven. That's mind-boggling to me. But God, don't you know what I've done? Don't you know how I am? Of course he does. And one of the most amazing truths ever conveyed is that God wants you as well. He wants you. He wants to be in relationship with you, not just in heaven, but right now. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Whenever the apostles would teach and preach about Jesus, there were two primary evidences that they would point to to show that their teaching and preaching was trustworthy. Number one, they had witnessed what Jesus had done. They had been with Jesus both before and after the resurrection. And secondly, they would point to the Old Testament, namely prophecy and how Jesus fit the fingerprint identity of the Messiah. Those were the two evidences that they often pointed to because these were proof positive that the one they were testifying about was actually the Son of God. They had followed on Jesus' heels. They had seen the holes in his wrist, in his feet, in his side. Not only that, they knew the scriptures. They knew what the Old Testament prophets had spoken of concerning the Messiah, and they were well aware of the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies right down to the minutest of detail. Peter was crucified upside down. John was exiled on the island of Patmos. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas was killed by darts in India. Stephen was stoned to death. James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death. And all these men would have had to do in order to save their lives was say, no, 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 I'm just joking. I really didn't mean all that. I, I, I take it all back. That's all they had to do. But this wasn't theoretical for these guys. They had seen it. They knew the Old Testament and the prophecies concerning the Messiah, and they had been hot on the heels of the man who fulfilled every one of those prophecies right down to the most minor of detail. They couldn't help but speak about him. They couldn't help but, but talk about their faith and how everyone else should have that same type of faith. Notice Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now as they, the council, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to re recognize them as having been with Jesus. You skip down to verse 18. It says, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They couldn't stop. Peter and John were so confident in what they had seen and what they had experienced that they were willing to die for it. They were willing to sacrifice their lives. All they had to do was recant it. All they had to do was stop speaking. And they couldn't. Because they were so convicted. Everything they had seen, everything they had read was true because they lived it. Look at verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 1 again. It says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter says, I know what the prophets said, and I saw it. I know what they spoke of, and I saw it in action. How is the word made more sure to Peter? By seeing it, by witnessing it, right? I mean, he had read it. Now he got to apply it in real-life situations. They saw the man who fit that prophetic profile in the Old Testament. They walked with him. They learned from him. They saw him die. They saw him rise. And Peter says, pay attention. Pay attention to these prophets. They're speaking to us. And they're talking about someone that we saw, that we dwelled with. 
You know, it really bothers me when Christians make the statement that we just need to kind of not worry about the Old Testament because it really doesn't have much use or value for us today. And folks, nothing could be further from the truth. Because you don't get the story until you understand the prophecies from the Old Testament. You cannot get the entire narrative without understanding the Old Testament prophecy. As Forrest McCann so eloquently pointed out in his class this morning, the Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a garden. And you've got to understand everything that comes in between, and that includes the Old Testament, right? And Peter is saying, pay attention. His words are, pay attention to what the prophet said, because it's pointing to something, something you're going to want to know about, right? Why do you think the Jews crucified Jesus? Because they didn't pay attention to the Old Testament. It's not that they didn't know it. They did know it. They knew it all too well. But they chose not to pay attention because they were stubborn. Like a lamp shining in a dark place, that is prophecy. That's what Peter is referring to. It's a light shining in a dark place. But that prophecy also provides a ray of hope. A new day is dawning. The prophets that we spoke about earlier in the year when we studied the minor prophets, we know that they, they talked so much about judgment, but they also talked about a day of hope. There was always a silver lining. These prophets talked about a day in the future where there would be hope on the horizon, and that hope was Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament prophecy does for us. It shines a light in a dark world. And not just for those living in the day and age that Peter is talking to, but for us today as well. A new day is dawning when the Lord will return. Pay special attention to the phrase, and the morning star arises in your heart. What is the morning star? It's Venus. Do you know that? That's the morning star. At certain times of the year, Venus is the last star that you see and the first indicator that the sun is rising. So when you see Venus in the east, bright and beautiful, you know that that light is getting ready to dawn. And there is a Venus in our hearts. There's a light dawning in our hearts. It's on its way. That new day is on its way. Revelation twenty-two sixteen states, I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Because we have become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter wrote in verse 4, and because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's already something dawning within us. Christ has dawned as a forerunner in our hearts of everything that God has ever prophesied about. Everything that God has promised will happen because Jesus is alive and well in my heart, in your heart. And we have the prophetic word confirmed. Listen to me. You cannot know everything there is to know about Jesus without knowing the Old Testament. We think that the story of Jesus picks up in Matthew. It's actually seen in Genesis. You know, when you go back to the Old Testament, and you look at prophecy, for instance, you go back to Isaiah. We know Isaiah. We know that he was the Messianic prophet. We know Isaiah chapter 53 especially, right? For he was, you know, he, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We know that passage. But do you know the context surrounding those words? Do you know the context surrounding Isaiah 53? Do you know what the, the, the book of Isaiah is about, namely? The whole book of Isaiah is about one word. It's, it's about exile, right? 
God's people are being taken into exile because of their disobedience. And Isaiah is talking about this. He prophesied when the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and carried away in exile by Assyria. And it was during this time that the southern kingdom of Judah was under the threat of being destroyed as well. But Isaiah tells the people to trust in the Lord, not in military alliances with other nations. Isaiah warned that Judah would be carried off into exile by the Babylonians. This is the major theme of the book of Isaiah. It's it's exile. That's the theme. And throughout the book of Isaiah, we see words like redeem or redemption. Words that should hearken us back to Moses and the people enslaved in captivity in Egypt. What's vitally important for us to understand is that God redeems his people. That word redeem means to buy back. He buys back his people. He brings them back from exile and into the promised land. But Isaiah helps us to see that this isn't just about Israel. This is about us as well. Regardless of what some TV preacher may tell you, God's plan was never just to redeem Israel. Never. God's plan was to redeem all who would come to him. The kingdom is for everyone, every tongue and every tribe from every nation. His plan included the redemption of all. God is building a road that will lead his people back from exile and to Zion. Notice chapter 51, verse 3 of Isaiah. It says, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. The Lord is going to make the wilderness of Zion like what? Like Eden, like that beautiful garden. In fact, the Lord is going to recreate the whole heavens and the whole earth for his redeemed people. Take Isaiah 65 verse 25 for instance. It says, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. But Isaiah isn't just a feel-good story because if you've read that book, you know that there's a lot of judgment going to happen. In the meantime, there are some people that are going to endure some tough stuff. Like we talked about, whether it was Jeremiah or Isaiah or the minor prophets, there's a a great hope of blessing to come, but the people hearing it for the first time were probably not going to see that. In fact, they weren't. But for those living in the future, like us, we're going to see it. In fact, we're living in those times that the minor prophets spoke of. That new day has dawned. The kingdom is here. We see this play out in the book of Isaiah. God would swallow up the veil that was spread over all the nations. Chapter 25, verses 7 through 8 tell us that God will swallow up death forever. That God is executing a plan to bring humanity back from captivity and to give them a whole new place or world where death was non-existent. Non-existent. God, uh, of course, knows that not everyone will buy in. Not everyone will want to be redeemed. Many will reject him. And so if you notice how the book of Isaiah ends, it says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. 
All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. What a happy ending, right? Well, I mean, it is for some. It'll be a glorious ending for those who are faithful. But for those who turn aside and do not follow... And do not obey, be anything but a happy ending. A very sad ending for those who reject the gift that God has given, of course, being the Messiah. Isaiah is pointing to the coming of Jesus as part of God's plan to redeem Israel, to redeem us as well. Again, the whole narrative of the Bible is one continuous narrative, which is redemption, right? To buy back, to be redeemed. We see foreshadowing of that in Isaiah. And the only way this redemption can happen is by God sending his son. We can get the bigger picture, but only by going back to the Old Testament. We can't know all that there is to know about Jesus by just starting in the Gospels. You've got to go back to prophecy. You've got to go back to where it all starts. Go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were exiled from paradise. But even then, there was hope. There was a promise that through her seed, one would come who would crush Satan's head. So we see it even back at the very beginning. There was hope in that dark day. In the middle of their sin, Adam and Eve saw a light, and this would not be the end of the story. You think about the people of Israel who were carried off into captivity because of their rebellion against God. But in the midst of captivity, in the midst of the darkness, God raises up uh, prophets who speak about judgment, but also who give hope. Even today, we live in a polluted world. We live in a world of darkness. We live in a world where trash is considered treasure and where treasure is considered trash. But in the darkness, there is light. And we worry, rightfully so, don't we? We worry. We worry about who's going to be president. We worry about health care. We worry about the economy. We worry about what kind of world we will leave to our grandkids. We wonder. Yet when you read through the New Testament, you see that the New Testament writers like Paul had a very different outlook on things, didn't they? They didn't seem to worry about those things. Romans 8.22, Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And we read passages like this and we say, oh yeah, end of the world's coming. You know, the world's in, in the pains of labor, we know it's about to be the end. No, Paul, Paul's not saying that. Paul's not saying this is the end. Paul's saying this is the beginning. This is the beginning of something new. That the world is in the pains and groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. And Paul says that what this means is that the world is giving birth to something even greater. God is giving birth to something special. Things are not hopeless. Quite the contrary. God has a plan. So you can worry about all those things that you worry about in our world today, but at the end of the day, you better put your faith and trust on the one thing that's going to get you through. Because this is not a, a signal of the end. This is rather a beginning. A new day is dawning. Something is in our future that is glorious. You and I are part of a plan, and we can be filled with hope in the midst of all the trials and tribulations, in the midst of all the pollution of this world. There is a light shining in the darkness, and that is a light of hope. It's the light of Jesus Christ, and it's the light of redemption. And you would never be able to see that light if it weren't for prophecy. 
Because what we do is we read passages like Romans 8 and we form our own opinions of it and we use it in a context that was never meant to be used or intended anyway. Look at prophecy. As Peter said, pay attention. Pay attention to what the Old Testament is saying and what it points to. You and I are living out the story. And that should give you goosebumps. That should give you chills. We know how the story is going to end. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Robbie Robbins. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the Iraqi War, the first Iraqi War. And after his 300th mission, he was told that he was going to get to go home. Now, it was a very spur-of-the-moment thing. He didn't have time to inform anybody or tell anybody, even his family, that he was coming home. He didn't argue. He got all his crew together. They hopped on a plane. They flew across the ocean. They landed in Massachusetts. And then he rented a car and drove all the way, all night, to his home in western Pennsylvania. And when he pulled into the driveway, there was a huge banner that said, Welcome home, Daddy. How did they know? I mean, nobody told him. He had no time to inform them. The whole thing was spontaneous. How did they know? He said he walked in the house, and his kids were half-dressed for school, and they come running up to him saying, Daddy, Daddy. His wife comes down the stairs, full makeup, hair done, beautiful yellow dress, gives him a hug. He said, how did you know? And she says, we didn't. When we heard the war was over, we assumed that you would be home. We didn't know when, but we thought you'd probably try to surprise us. So we just stayed ready every day. That's what you should do. That's what you should do. Stay ready every day. We don't know when our Lord is coming back. We don't know that day or that hour, but we know how the story is going to end. And we'd better know that we need to be ready. The entire story of the Bible is playing out right before your eyes, and you're a part of it. This story of redemption includes you and me. This is a story that will culminate in Jesus coming back. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. We just got to be ready. Ready every day for him to come back and take us home. And when you pray tonight, when you pray every night, pray those words that Paul prayed, Maranatha, which means, Lord, come quickly. We have no fear. We know how the story is going to end. Let's speed it up, right? You ever pray for that? Why should we not? If heaven is better and that's our home, let's get, let's get to it, right? Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. And if you have a need this morning, you come quickly. Because there is nothing more important than being right with God. You don't know when he's coming back or when you will leave this place. And you're all born with an expiration date. It may come due here in the next few minutes. Do not leave here this morning without being right with God. If we can help you, come quickly as we stand and as we sing.